your holiness, your justice, and your love. Um, your compassions are new every morning, and we can't even begin to count those. So, Lord, thank you for taking the inadequacy of our speech and our song and delighting in it and being pleased with it and then transforming it into something which glorifies your name. Unite our hearts, I pray, so that um, we'd listen for your voice, we'd respond to the way that your spirit moves, and that Jesus Christ would be exalted in this place. To you be the honor and glory forever. Amen. Good morning. Um, my name is Greg Howe. I'm on the preaching team here at New Life Fellowship. I normally work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on campuses here in the Northeast. If you need a Bible as we begin um, our sermon, please raise your hand, and one of our ushers would love to hand you a Bible that you could use for the service. So just raise your hand and let us know if you need a Bible. Over as we've been approaching Advent and Thanksgiving in particular, we've chosen as a church to focus on gratitude and thankfulness. How does the discipline of being thankful and being filled with gratitude radically change us? So several weeks ago, Pastor Rich our lead pastor spoke on Jesus healing the ten lepers. And this amazing and troubling experience where ten people experienced the blessing and the goodness of God, but only one of them stops long enough in the process of enjoying the blessing to turn around, right? And to go back to Jesus and to say thank you. Which convicted me because I'm a person who can thoroughly enjoy God's blessings and goodness. And just go around talking about it, but to actually stop and turn back to God and say, thank you for that, was something that just rolled around in my mind. And Rich invited us to engage in the examine, right? For at the end of every day, to review the prior 24 hours and then ask ourselves the question, so where did God demonstrate his goodness, his mercy, and his presence to me today? As a way of paying attention so that we could turn back to him and say thank you. Because Jesus asked one of the most heartbreaking questions, I think, in the New Testament in that incident, right? We're not ten healed. Where are the other nine? Last week, Rich then brought us back to another passage to think about the impact of being grateful and a thankful people means that we have the freedom to be generous because we actually understand where what we have comes from, how generous and good God is, and therefore can hold everything that we have with open hands. And so he challenged us to think about our giving and the ways that we use money and the resources that we've been um, entrusted with. And um, that's been a profound thing as well for us to reflect on. This week, as we continue to reflect on how gratitude works in our life, what I want to suggest is gratitude merely isn't merely something that um, provokes us to stop or turn or to give. It actually is the fuel that drives all of our spiritual formation. It's the thing that actually gives energy to our church when we engage in what we call the five M's, right? Why do we engage in missions so that um, Jeff and other folk are trying to reach out to the community through the CDC, or we do an alpha program to introduce people to Jesus? Why are we concerned as we think about a church that people engage in healthy ways with one another and engage the monastic disciplines of silence and solitude and Sabbath so that we aren't a driven, busy people, but we're a Christ-like people? Um, why do we do the things that we do at this church, bridging racial gaps, when it would be so much easier to just attract people like ourselves? I want to suggest that what drives the spiritual formation of our church, the way, the true spirituality that moves us, is a deep sense of gratitude. 
And I think if you capture, right, how central gratitude is to orienting the entirety of how you arrange your life with God and how God arranges his life with you, it would transform the way you approach this week, which is one of the most crazed weeks we will experience. Because we're going to put a lot of energy into being thankful for God, for all that God's given us on Thursday, and then immediately turn around on Friday and be dissatisfied with everything that we have and all that we would like to buy, Right? And then from there, it's just a pell-mell rush to acquire and gift and receive until we end up at January 1st exhausted by our celebration. But I think if, if you could orient your life around gratitude, it would fuel your spiritual life because it would change our spiritual formation. So what's this term, spiritual formation? Um, Spiritual formation is often defined uh, by Robert Mulholland as the process of being conformed into the image of Christ, being made to look like Jesus in the ways that we are internally and the ways that we act externally in the world for the sake of other people. It's not enough that we're just shaped internally so that we're happy and holy and that we're healthy, right? Happy, holy, and healthy would be deeply satisfying, but happiness, holiness, and healthiness inevitably begins to extend the goodness of God into the relationships around us. That's why emotionally healthy spirituality isn't just about restoring the broken parts of ourselves and understanding um, our shadow sides, but it's about how we treat other people and how we build community. And Robert Mulholland, who was here at our church um, doing a leadership summit maybe about nine months ago, uses this definition to orient himself. And And I'm convinced gratitude... It's the fuel that drives this process for us. Gratitude fuels all true spirituality and all true spiritual formation. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 116. Because in Psalm 116, you have this amazing picture of the psalmist engaging in a deep experience of gratitude, and you watch how it literally transforms everything about his relationship with God. Psalm 116, the first four verses, reads this way. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. This psalm begins, at least in the Hebrew, with really just... um, a phrase, I love. The entire first sentence is, I love. Right? It's this burst um, that emerges from the heart of the psalmist where he just goes, I love. Because I have been given so much. And there's no even object because the per- you assume, and that's why the translators put it there, I love God. But the reality is, if you love God, then you love the world that God loves, and you love the people that God loves, and the community that God is bringing together. And so for the psalmist... The psalm starts with, I love. And why do we love? Because God first loved us, right? That's in John, 1 John, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. And I I think a couple of you were whispering it, right? Why do we love? Because God first loved us. And if you whisper it, there's probably some Sunday school teacher in some church somewhere smiling that finally one of the kids, however many decades later, could remember that Bible verse. So how does the psalmist experience the goodness of God that provokes him to go, I love? Well, he says very clearly, right? 
I love God because he heard my voice and my cry for mercy. When I thought the world was crushing me, when I felt like death was close to me, I turned to him and said, help. And when I called on the name of the Lord, Lord, save me, he heard my voice and he heard my cry for mercy and he saved us. And it's from a deep awareness of his need and of God's great mercy that gratitude becomes love in his life. Right? Many of us have experienced that. For some of us, um, we've felt so trapped in death, so trapped um, in the narrow confines of our own interests, our self selfish predilections towards sin, our inability to change, and the inevitability that we are damaging the people around us. We could not stop ourselves. And out of the depth of that, many of us have cried out, Lord, save me and save the people around me from myself. And the testimony of many of the people at this church is that the Lord answered our call for help. Right? Others of us have faced very practical situations in life where you were up against ropes. You felt like you had no opportunity, no, <clears throat> excuse me, no ability to get out of the bind you were in. Whether it was... Um, a situation at work, a relationship in your family, a problem with somebody that you deeply love, and you just knew there was nothing you could do, nothing you could manipulate, nothing you could control that would make this better. And many of us in the church have, like the psalmist, cried out, Lord, save us. And we've experienced, as a people, God coming, hearing our cry, demonstrating his love, and actually saving us, right? Oh, preeminently, we see this in Jesus. We're brought to our knees by our inability to do what we long to do and the inevitability of the ways that we were hurting ourselves and other people. We cried out to God and asked him to save us, and he did. For others of us, it's just the freedom that we've experienced as we've continued to engage with Jesus, right? And day after day, we find chains are indeed being broken, our hearts are being set free. We are becoming more authentically human than we ever imagined before. More authentically ourselves as we press more deeply into Jesus. And part of what we long to see happen, right, is whenever you experience this kind of saving, you experience deep gratitude. And when you have that kind of deep gratitude, you have deep love. This is actually so true, it's actually a movie cliche. Right? You've all, I trust, watched those kind of movies. Um, it's the movie where usually it's um, a very uptight, very smart, and overly sophisticated woman gets trapped on like either a desert island or um, some kind of adventure that she's trapped with. And she's trapped with a largely incommunicative but hunky kind of guy who's rude and a little uncouth, right? And so the first half of the movie, they're sniping each other. And she's like, I can't believe I'm with a man who smells this terrible and acts so poorly. And he's like, eh, go back to your Manhattan penthouse, right? And they keep, like, they do that the like two-thirds of the way through the movie until... Someone's life is in danger. And one of them saves the other, or now in more egalitarian times, they both save each other about 10 minutes apart. Right? And all of a sudden, once their lives have been saved, they start looking at the other person with new eyes. Oh, maybe you aren't just a lunk, but actually you're strong and protective and actually are a kind person who would risk their life for me. Right? And the guy looks at her and goes, you aren't just an arrogant, overqualified person. You're actually smart and thoughtful and you're kind. And all of a sudden, by the end of the movie, right, they're together. Because what happens? 
when you see people through the eyes of gratitude, they change. Because you end up seeing what you're looking for. Right? Otherwise, you confirm your own biases. They're a terrible, uncouth person. They're a snob. But all of a sudden, when you experience their goodness, when you experience the way they save your life, all of a sudden you think they could be kind, and you just start seeing kindness emerge in their personality day after day. They're actually self-sacrificial, and you begin to see that emerge in their personality day after day. Right? This is why, in fact, it's so critical that we develop skills of observing the good things that people do. There's a professor who um, can predict within 30 seconds of meeting a couple whether they'll be divorced in five years or not. He has roughly 90% accuracy when he does that. 10 to 15 seconds of watching the couple interact, and he can predict five years from now whether they'll be married or not. And what he says is all it takes is he watches their facial expressions, and he says, I just look for the slightest hint of contempt. The kind of eye roll when the spouse is talking, the this again, right? When a complaint, he says, as soon as I see that, they're doomed. 90% of the time, they're divorced within five years. Because he said, no relationship can survive contempt because contempt reinforces contempt. So I think contemptuous thoughts of you, you're stupid, you're irritating, you're a nag. And then I confirm that every time I look at you. He says, the greatest antidote to that is gratitude. When you intentionally seek out in your spouse, your housemate, your family, the acts of kindness, generosity, goodness, self-control that they exhibit, and you thank them for it, you acknowledge that it's there, you actually begin to train yourself to see it over and over and over again. And there's study after study that shows it's the couples that observe each other's kind behavior to one another, acknowledge it, verbally thank one another for it, that actually survive and thrive because they're actually seeing and looking for the behaviors that they long to see. And when you get that, all of a sudden, you're grateful. And out of that gratitude, right, is the fuel, the soil through, from which love grows. This is why gratitude fuels our spiritual formation. It actually prompts us to see God with new eyes. When you're grateful, right, you recognize and you look for and you affirm God's love, and as soon as you see God's love, you're grateful, and then it provokes you to love God in return. Spiritual formation doesn't begin with our actions or our programs. Otherwise, um, and it'd be easy to think so, right? If I just have enough quiet times, I'm going to experience the love of God. If I just organize my rule of life this way, if I just practice these kind of particular programs, if I join this particular book club, it'll all come together. And that's not how it works. Um, our spiritual formation, right, being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others, begins with how God loves us and saves us and then provokes within us a desire uh, to pursue him. The challenge, of course, for most of us is that it's really hard to be grateful because we take things for granted. So I have a daughter. My oldest daughter is six years old, and just two nights ago at dinner, um, she began to list her favorite proteins. It's a little odd, but um, we organize all of our meals for the kids around proteins. Uh, I'm Chinese. Everything's organized around the protein, right? So um, breakfast, what's your protein? And then we work the carbs and other things around that. What's the protein we're going to eat for dinner? Do you need a protein for snack because we have cheese, yogurt, right? Um, coming from poverty cultures, many of us right, know that. You start with the meat. If you watch Chinese people who go to, like, buffets, we all kind of, we survey the buffet area, and then you find the most expensive protein to start with, 
right? You start with the seafood and you pile it up as you're trying to get your money's worth. So you start with the expensive food. And it's the amateurs who start with our carbohydrates. Like if anybody puts a noodle or a piece of rice on their plate at the first round, you just think, ugh. <laughs> like obviously you need a guide. So my daughter, Madeline, was working through her list of favorite proteins and she got like to 15, right? So she's like, I love chicken hearts. We're Chinese. We eat chicken hearts. So chicken hearts, she's like, fish eyes, fish eyes are really good. And like salami is high up there, Pete, because, you know, Italians make salami, so I want to acknowledge Pete. Um, salami is really high up there. Um, and she was going, you know, beans, and she was going down the list. And at the end of it, I remember sitting with her and saying, you know, Mado, do you realize how fortunate you are? And she said, why? And I said, you could identify 15 different kind of proteins that you like. Do you know that in the vast majority of the world, if a child can get one or two of those proteins a day or a week, they think of themselves so thankful, like an egg. An egg is incredibly precious for that one protein source. During the day. You have 15 of these. And she couldn't get it through her mind. Now, admittedly, she's six, but it occurred to me um, how hard it is for me to be grateful because of all the things I take for granted. Right? Um, I was thinking about my own like top 10 thankfulness list one day. And um, I wrote down, well, I'm thankful I have a job I love, which most people don't take for granted. Right? I'm thankful. I was thankful that one day, like, the biggest question I was facing on kind of an existential level was what was I going to eat for lunch? But it implied several things. It implied one, I expect lunch. And a lot of people don't get lunch. Second, I have a choice of what lunch I want to buy because I have enough money to make a choice about what I'm going to eat today. Three, lunch is actually not essential in my diet. I could skip a couple lunches and it might do me some good. <laughs> right? And fourth, um, the issue for me was taste, not nutrition. Because I wasn't counting on it. And so I could just delight myself in what I was going to eat. Right? And I had this entire list, like... Um, my, Madeline was snuggling with me in the morning, and so that was really nice. I read a book, and there was this one page that was really powerful, and I wanted to meditate on it, and I thought, how amazing it is that I have the resources to actually pull books off my shelf, and I can choose which book I'm going to pull off my shelf. I have a spouse who's incredibly supportive and sacrificial as we work together. I was so thankful um, that even as I anticipate the Ferguson grand jury verdict, which may be as early as tomorrow, that even if it's a terrible verdict, whatever that means. I live in a country where I assume justice should be served. And if I'm outraged, I'm outraged because justice generally serves its purposes here, and I should never take that for granted. Because in most countries in the world, it would just pass. I was thankful for small things, like a person was kind to my four-year-old daughter on the train because it was really crowded, and she's like, I feel like I'm in a forest, because all she saw were kneecaps. Um, I was grateful I had time at work to just stop and pray for a moment in the middle of the day, right? I mean, these are small picking things. They aren't dramatic experience of God's goodness. But if I don't pay attention to those small things, I'm ignoring the overwhelming flood of goodness that God intends to introduce in my life. And I'm starving my soul of the fuel that it needs so that I can say like the psalmist, I love. Because when I take everything for granted... I don't love. I ignore. And the longer I ignore, the closer I get to contempt. And the closer I get to contempt, 
the quicker this relationship is going to end. How will you pursue the discipline of paying attention to God's overwhelming goodness in just the small, ordinary choices that you have in life? For some of us, the hardest decision at the beginning of the day is, what am I going to wear? And think about what that implies. You have clothes to wear. You have somewhere to go when you wear them. And how you look is actually um, something that you have flexibility about. Do you see how all of a sudden the world is filled with overwhelming blessing? Right? Gratitude fuels our spiritual formation because it provokes us to recognize God's goodness and then we love. Gratitude also shapes three of the outward spiritual formation disciplines that we practice, witness, Sabbath, and service. Um, the psalmist goes on to say, right, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. And what strikes me about this is after he reflects on how God saved him, the first thing he does is he begins to talk about how good God is. Right? He talks about God's character. You are merciful, and yet you're still righteous. You care about justice. You're full of compassion, and you protect idiots like me, right? The unwary, the um, the simple who, who make bad choices. You show your goodness all the time. Because when he encounters the goodness of God, he can't stop talking about the God who is good. <clears throat> this is what drives our missional experiences here at New Life, right? The reason we do the Community Development Center, the reason we engage in Alpha programs and try to share our faith, the reason that we work overseas is we've experienced God's goodness so deeply and so thoroughly, we want other people to experience and hear about it as well. The challenge for most of us is that we feel really burdened by this responsibility usually, right? Or we feel a little embarrassed that we have to name the name of Jesus. It's a little embarrassing, right? It's like talking about some weird private bodily function, and we probably shouldn't be doing that in front of everyone. But what strikes me is that gratitude frees us both from the embarrassment and from the stress. I thought about this a lot because um, this week was kind of... um, Customer service purgatory for me. I was working um, with Verizon Wireless, and apologies if any of you work for them. I'm sure they're a fine company normally. Um, but I talked to, um, I called them five different times. The last day, I was on the phone with them for three and a half hours. From 9 to 12.30, I was bumped around to six different people. Back and forth, like, well, we can't fix that problem. You have to go talk to that department. That department, like, okay, I can do this one thing. Then you have to go back to this department and come back to us. And, we'll f- and, and I was just losing it. The, you, the way I know the Holy Spirit has worked my life is I did not cuss once. I was just so frustrated. And then finally, there was one help desk employee, right? One customer service rep who finally, I got on the line. It's like 1045 at night. And he goes, oh, he looked at the call, like the notes they had taken on the computer and what I, had, I was trying to explain the problem. He goes, I can imagine you must be incredibly frustrated right now. <laughs> then he said, let me help you. And then situation by situation, he began unraveling. He goes, okay, the problem is this thing happened here. Let me put you on hold. I'll take care of that. And he went and took care of it. He came back. Okay, that triggered another problem, but we're going to fix it by doing this. Just wait on hold. I'll take care of that, right? And he just kept going back and forth. And literally, um, his shift was supposed to end at 11 o'clock our time, and he kept working. And he said, and I said, okay, well, you can stop there because the other customer service person I talked to said, tomorrow morning, they'll take care of you. He goes, no, no, that's just crazy. Let me fix this for you now. And he just kept working. And then he said, the next day, 
He said, tomorrow, there's one thing I have to put in. I need another department to approve it. I will call you tomorrow night at 9 o'clock to make sure they did it. They need about uh, 15 hours to make sure it happens. I will call you because I will have checked to make sure everything was taken care of. And lo and behold, right at 9.55 the next night, on my phone, I got a text. Hi, this is Verizon. I checked. They got it done. I decided not to call you because I didn't want to bother you. You've been on the phone long enough with us. As you can tell, I cannot stop talking about this guy. I told the people in my office about this guy. I told the people in my watch. But it strikes me, look, if I'm going to evangelize for how good that one customer service person is, why can't I do that for God? Right? A lot of us like movies, especially during the holiday season. We've already started to list the movie. If you see a good movie, we're going to talk about it, right? Whether it's a Marvel movie or a Disney movie, you can tell the age of the kids I have, right? I mean, some of you watch really sophisticated movies too. But right, as soon as we hear about it, we tell other people, you have to see this movie. It's excellent. It has everything you like. Romance, adventure, drama, and deep political thoughts all at the same time. You should go, right? We're happy to be evangelists for Disney, Marvel, or Universal Studios. But somehow God's a little too embarrassing. Or you find a good restaurant. You'll notice I have a lot of food illustrations. I'm Chinese. Um, But you get to a good restaurant where there's good service and you can't wait to tell people, you have to try it. They have the best whatever. And we evangelize for the restaurant, but not for God. I think if we were more deeply thankful, talking about God would be a lot more natural. If we are aware of how much he's done for us, in us, and through us, we would reference him as casually and as passionately as we do a movie or a restaurant. It strikes me because we're often embarrassed. We think we need the perfect answer, right? And so some of us immediately move to apologetics books if we can get the right answer, and others of us are just embarrassed and we freeze. But all that witness really requires as a grateful person is to um, do what they do in court, to be a witness. Testify to what you've actually seen what you've actually experienced. You don't have to share somebody else's story. You don't have to share the story of what happened 20 years ago. Just explain how God was good to you this week. And then back out. They don't need the entire gospel right now, but if somebody would just name the name and show that it was relevant, their lives could be changed. When we're grateful, we can't help but talk about the person to who, that we are grateful for. And do you see how all of a sudden that would begin to change the way that we thought about witness? It wouldn't be a burden because there's the Great Commission, do something about it. right? Or the guilt of these people need to know, but it would be, how could I not talk about the person who's been so good and generous to me? And then there'd be joy, and there'd be no anxiety, and there'd be no stress, and frankly, you wouldn't sound as odd when you do it. Gratitude doesn't just shape... Um, the discipline of witness, it begins to shape the way that we rest. Look how the passage then goes on to, right? Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What struck me as I was meditating over this section is those first couple lines, right? Um, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Having found that the Lord is trustworthy in death and in mourning and in conflict and in treacherous situations, the psalmist thinks, of course I can rest, because God is trustworthy. 
if he's demonstrated that he can take care of me in those situations, he can take care of me in the small situation in front of me right now. This is why we can rest, because if he's been good, he will continue to be good. And this helps us when you take something like the Sabbath or take a moment for silence or solitude, right? The reason we don't do it is because we're so sure we have to make something happen or we have to create security for ourselves or keep everything under control. But if you realize God has been trustworthy, if you're grateful for all that he's done to keep you safe this far, it allows you to step back and go, in the one day where I'm not going to try to control something or manipulate somebody or make something happen, God is still in control, and he's still good. And I can rest in that. That's what was so great about Mabel's testimony before the offering, I thought. Right? Um, in spite of really ch- a challenging situation, Mabel was able to walk through that situation without panic, without anxiety, without deep stress. Actually, when, you, when I heard her testimony, what struck me was not just the words that she was saying, but she radiates calm as she's talking. Why is that? Well, I think part of it's the discipline of tithing for decades, which allowed her to move into a new situation that was quite challenging and say, I'm not changing the discipline. But part of it is after decade after decade of watching God provide, when she hit a two-and-a-half-year period where she could not figure out where provision would come from, She could rest in the confidence that her loving father's arms were outstretched to her and would catch her, right? That the safety net wasn't the government safety net or the safety net provided by her former employer, but it was God himself who would be her safety net. And I think if you engage in the discipline of gratitude, it makes it so much easier to let go and to pause for 24 hours out of one of the seven days of the week and say, I'm letting go of the reins. I don't have to control the, drive, right, the steering wheel. God has it, and I don't need to have it. As some of you know, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I'm a missionary on campus, which means for the last 18 years, I've raised support uh, to cover my salary expenses. And last weekend, I was preaching at a retreat down in Florida, and I did a staff recruitment lunch, and I was talking to these young college students, inviting them to consider staff, and inevitably, one of the first questions is, So this fundraising thing, right? Because nobody goes to college thinking my goal in life is now to go beg other people for money, as some of our parents have put it. And um, what I was able to tell them is, you know, I think fundraising has been good for my soul because it's stripped away the illusion that I can provide for myself and I've had to learn to trust on God. And I can tell you for 18 years, he's provided my daily bread, right? Day after day, month after month, year after year. And this has been critical because when my wife and I hit major decisions about jobs, about our children's education, about our future, my posture going in is God has already proven how generous he is. I'm already a thankful person, so I don't need to stress. In fact, most of our problems are because he's super abundantly blessed us with so much that we have to make choices now. And because I can trust that God is good, I can trust that the choices are not going to be bad. And it's taking the stress out of the decision-making, right? It's what the psalmist is getting at um, when he says, so rest, my soul. You have nothing to fear. 
The disciplines that it works on us aren't merely that we witness with greater joy and freedom or that we rest with greater joy and freedom, but actually we serve God with greater joy and freedom as well. Look at verses 12 through 16. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Precious in the, is, sorry, in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. Right? There's this beautiful line um, in there. Uh, the ones I've highlighted, but also... Uh, what shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? How could I possibly repay to the Lord everything that he's given me? And having found that the Lord is good, the psalmist promises to fulfill his vows and identifies himself as God's servant. He identifies himself as God's servant, not out of the kind of Asian sense of duty, obligation, because um, at least in the Asian community, like around weddings, it's a very carefully calibrated set of things. So um, I give you a present roughly this size, but it won't embarrass your family because you're able to reciprocate later with a reasonably identically priced gift later. And if it sounds confusing to you, it actually all works out in practice, but it takes a little bit of time to kind of calibrate it all, right? Like I take you out to dinner when you're in my town. I know I'm going to go visit you later. Um, it's, in some cases in Asia, it's the way um, community lending happens around weddings. So everybody knows um, when that family has a wedding, we all give monetary gifts to help them ha pay for their wedding. And as soon as my family has the wedding, their family is going to reciprocate in return, right? And so you can live in this kind of duty obligation thing. We have to kind of match each other's gifts. And that's not what causes the servant to serve, right? It's also not the Western European thing of quid pro quo. Like, I gave you something, so now you owe me something, which we translate to God. Like, I had a quiet time today. I get a parking space. I served at church, my children get to go to college, right? Um, I pray daily, everything should be good today, right? And we kind of think God, like we're twisting his arm, like I'm going to pray five more minutes, you owe me. <laughs> the psalmist doesn't see it this way, right? What the psalmist says is, I've received so much. What a privilege. What a joy to actually offer you something in return to express my thanks. Um, when my parents immigrated to the United States and then moved to Chicago, they were really poor. Um, my dad had a job, but, you know, it was the early 70s. I think his salary was $175 a month, $100 of which was um, rent. And then, you know, you had to pay for food and everything else off the $75 for the end, until the end of the month. And the family that rented us an apartment um, generously kept the rate, rent stable for years at a time while my parents were trying to get on their feet. And um, when things were tight, they were generous with the things that they had. Um, 50 years later, my parents still are in touch with that couple. They regularly see each other. When um, that couple comes up to Chicago, my parents can't wait to open our house to them because my parents cannot think of ways to express how deeply thankful they are to that couple. It doesn't feel like a burden, right? It isn't quid pro quo. They gave us $5 off rent that month. We should buy them a burger somewhere and you know, pay like month by month, pay it back, right? For my parents, it's a sense of, when we were in need, they were generous to us. Now that we have some resources, of course, we'd like to shower them with blessing. And for the psalmist, they look at the opportunities to serve and they say, given that God has been so gracious, how could we not shower him with blessing and goodness in return? I am my Lord's servant, the psalmist says, right? Whether I live or whether because my death will be precious to you, I will trust you and I will serve, right? Right? 
whether it costs me my life or just takes the rest of my life. But it comes out of a grateful heart, and so there's pleasure and joy in it. Gratefulness shapes and fuels our spiritual transformation. It affects the ways that we witness to him, that we rest in him, and that we um, serve him. Finally, it actually profoundly shapes the ways that we worship collectively together. Look at verses uh, 17 through 19. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Because, you see, gratitude also shapes our corporate spiritual experience as well. In worship, we express the heart of the gratitude that we've been experiencing personally, right? Because every worship song, every prayer ever prayed can get reduced to three phrases at some level, right? Help! I'm really sorry. And thank you. Right? Isn't it essentially every prayer you've ever prayed? Help! I'm sorry. Thank you. In this church, when we gather for corporate worship, we major on the thank you. Right? It, it's what gives energy to our singing. It's what drives um, our sermons. It's, it, it's, it's the pleasure of being together. But profoundly... Gratitude fuels our corporate experience together. So we say thank you in the ways that we sing. We say thank you as we give through um, the CDC. We say thank you as we invest in the ESL for the community around us. We say thank you to God by caring for people in our small groups and investing and praying. It's all a tremendous way to say thank you for everything that you've done. And we'll look more at that um, in the week to come. So how do we develop these kind of thankfulness, gratitude, awareness so that our spiritual lives are transformed this way, right? So that our first gut response to God is, thank you, I love you. I speak of you naturally. I rest in you. I serve you with joy. And I gather together with a deep sense of abundance. I'd like to suggest that we do exactly what Rich suggested several weeks ago when he taught on the um, 10 lepers in Jesus. I think we need to pay attention to the places that we're grateful to God. But the discipline I'd like us... to go to is this. Don't just be satisfied with two or three places where you're grateful. Give yourself a goal of 10 specific places of thankfulness that you will identify each day between now and the end of Christmas. Now, I'll tell you from doing this on a daily basis, it's hard for me to get past four or five some days. But when I push myself to examine even the small things I take for granted, like I walked in the room and flipped a switch and all of a sudden there's light which implies something about the country I live in. It implies something about the places I work. It implies about what I take for granted. I'm filled with thankfulness, right? The fact that the internet is down in my office is incredibly frustrating until how much the technology I assume is normal, which would have been magic 20 years ago, right? I wiggle my fingers and someone in a foreign country is seeing my face. The pity for them, but the amazing thing about technology, right? Identify 10 things a day during your exam and discipline yourself to keep looking because the reality is you'll find what you're looking for. It will shape the eyes through which you look at God and you will see his goodness begin to multiply around you, not because anything he has done has changed, but because you're starting to change. And as you experience um, this kind of gratitude and thankfulness, your heart is going to change. And as your heart changes, you're going to cry out with the psalmist, I love because he first loved us. 
Let me pray for us and invite the worship team to come up. Lord Jesus, train our eyes to see your work around us. Train our eyes and our ears to hear the ways that you are telling us time and time again, look how I provided for you, look how I love you, look how I care for you. So that in these great times of abundance, we give thanks, and if we are at a place where we don't see your abundance, we cannot identify your goodness that we'd be able to trust. And so, Lord, meet us, we pray. Change us, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our prayer team to come to my right. We have the Lord's prayer, the Lord's table, rather, on my, my left. And uh, Josephine, you can put that, that quote up. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been using this quote to really uh, form in our minds what gratitude is. And gratitude is a knowing awareness that we are the recipients of goodness. It's a knowing awareness that we're the recipients of goodness. And so God wants to awaken in us uh, this sense that we're going to pay attention to all the ways that he has blessed us, all the ways he's poured out his goodness on us. And so when we talk about the prayer of examine this week, really, uh, as one person said, it's us praying backwards so that we can live forward. We're praying backwards. We're, we're looking at, we're taking inventory of all the ways that God has been good to us. We're looking backwards. And that's going to propel us forward. And it's a mystery to me that the simple act of saying thank you to God shapes and forms us. It's a mystery to me. It, it, it gives us joy. It gives us peace. It gives us contentment when our lives are really, truly filled with gratitude. And so this is what God is inviting us to do. And so we have our prayer team here. to Listen, to do this takes work. I'm a father of two small children, as Greg is as well. And it is hard, if you have children, it is hard to pay attention. It's hard, if you're in working, if you're a student, it's hard to pay attention. But I want to pray that the Holy Spirit will really fill us with a discipline and a desire to look back to all the ways that God has been good to us. God has been good to you. In light of your challenges, your trials, your setbacks, God has been good to you. And we want to look back in gratitude and allow that to shape us to shape us forward and so if you need prayer you need someone to just pray with you and pray for you that something would be awakened in you not just this thanksgiving week but for the rest of our lives that we would be filled we would be we would be the most grateful people on the face of this earth and and it would be it would be expressed in our witness in our resting in our mission we have the lord's table to my left and when we come to the lord's table uh, the word Eucharist, where we get the word, you know, communion, Eucharist, it's, it's really about thank you. It's, it's thank you. Or another translation is it, it's the good gift. It's a gift. And so when we come to the table, we essentially say, Lord, thank you for all the ways you've been good to us. You died on a cross for me. You resurrected. You sit at the right hand of the Father. You've been good. And so when we take bread and we dip it in the cup. We do it with gratitude all the ways you've been good to us. And so you can come up and you can receive that and Carmen will be here there uh, to offer that to you. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And if you're new to new life, we do this every single week. If this is your first time here, we end every gathering with our hands in a posture of receiving. Because the world grasps. On Black Friday, 
be careful. People are going to be grasping. But we live with our hands open, free, thanking God for all the ways he's blessed us. And so with your hands in your heart in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with his peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit with a knowing awareness that you are the recipient of goodness. And may your life this week and beyond be filled with gratitude. And may that gratitude overflow in the way you live in the world. And so I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the generous name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen. And grace and peace, everyone.